Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Westminster held its breath this week as Joe Biden was in striking distance of being declared the next US president, which will have big consequences for the UK. There is no question in my mind that Britain's interest lies with a Joe Biden victory, with a US administration that wants to play a role in bringing the world together to tackle coronavirus, that wants to rejoin the Paris Agreement on climate change, that wants to work to rid the world of nuclear weapons. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be examining what a Biden presidency would mean for Britain, as we heard from the Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy at the top there, and whether Boris Johnson is ready to do business with a rather different kind of president. Joining me to discuss is the FT's Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator Gideon Rachman and Bronwyn Maddox, the Director of the Institute for Government Think Tank. And later, we'll be discussing Rishi Sunak's fourth major economic package in six weeks, as the Chancellor returned to the Commons to extend the furlough scheme until March. Was it a good use of money, and will it help repair relations between Westminster and the devolved nations? Political editor George Parker and Scotland correspondent Muir Dickey will be discussing. Well, we're recording this on Friday morning. It's been quite a long week for all of us political obsessives, having watched CNN back to back, had very little sleep. We're doing this as the final votes are coming in. Gideon, how obsessively have you been watching the coverage? Or have you managed to do it in a more professional way of taking a more stand back approach as opposed to scrolling through Twitter? Fairly obsessively, I'm afraid. But I did get some sleep on the night itself. And since then, have been following, you know, all the ways you'd expect television, internet, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, and found myself more kind of emotionally affected by it than most political stories I follow. But since I am, as you might expect, you know, hoping for a Biden victory, I'm feeling rather better at the moment than I have been maybe 36 hours ago. Do you think you're emotionally involved in it because of the stakes or because of the drama of this counting in this particular race? I was wondering about that. I think it's mainly rational because it's incredibly important and because I think that Trump in his behaviour over the last 24 hours has demonstrated how profoundly unfit he is to be President of the United States and also, you know, leader of the free world. America is the most important democracy in the world and as we're about to discuss is incredibly important to my own country. So what happens there really, really matters to us as well. But also it reminded me in some ways of following a football match I'm particularly emotionally involved in, you know, where you just become obsessed with wanting a particular result. There is a bit of that as well, but I'd like to think it's mainly rational. Well, Bonwin, can you bring some normality? Have you been obsessively following or have you taken a more cerebral approach to this? I can't bring any normality to it because it's not a normal election, I think, even in the long history of American elections, which are full of drama. No, I've been chatting endlessly with friends in the States and relatives. And I think the drama of this one, because of the way the votes are played out, because of how close the margin is, because the polls were indicating a much, much firmer 
result for Biden. All that has played into the the tension. But as Gideon's saying, also, this one really matters. I mean, we always say that about American elections, but this one really does because it's the idea of America and the state of its own democracy that's on test as well. And that's what the world's looking at. And there are many countries out there that are aren't democracies or are kind of half democracies looking at that, thinking, is that what we want? And I think what happens in this election and what happens afterwards, particularly if President Trump keeps up his call of fake votes, that's going to matter for how the world sees this as much as the actual result, though the result matters too. Well, it certainly is going to matter for the UK. So let's dive into our main topic. As America enters its third day of counting to determine who will be its next president, the Democratic candidate Joe Biden seemed to be edging towards victory. Despite Donald Trump's unsubstantiated claims that the process was rigged with illegal votes, Boris Johnson has declined to get involved in the row as he told MPs in response to the opposition leader Keir Starmer this week. Well, Mr Speaker, in answer to his uh, opening question, uh, of course, uh, we don't comment as a UK government on the democratic processes of our, of our friends and allies. And I don't think, he would, I don't think in all seriousness he would, expect, uh, he would expect otherwise. But preparations in Downing Street for a Biden presidency have been well underway for some time. On Brexit, Northern Ireland, trade, diplomacy, the economy and personal relations, a change is blowing across the Atlantic, which will pose both threats and opportunities for the Johnson government. So Gideon, we're recording this on Friday when the result isn't quite clear, but it does seem Joe Biden has got the big mo at the moment. So on that basis that he is declared the next president, what immediately does that mean for Britain and the rest of the world? Britain's actually in a more ambiguous position than most countries in the world. I mean, I think you could say for the other European countries pretty clearly who they would want. I think, say, Poland would want Trump. Germany clearly wants Biden. Who does Britain want? I think there's a strong faction in the Conservative Party and in the Johnson government that tacitly would want a Trump victory or would have wanted a Trump victory. There's a poll run on Conservative Home where a majority of their Conservative Party members responding to that poll said they wanted Trump. And I think that's because they know that Trump is the president who is sympathetic to their grand project, the project that defines the government, which is Brexit. And Trump is also the one who, at least in theory, has promised them a fantastic trade deal, which they need to demonstrate the benefits of Brexit. Whereas Biden has made, at moments, quite hostile sounds about a trade deal if it were to threaten the Good Friday Agreement. So there is palpable nervousness in wings of the Conservative Party. What Boris Johnson himself thinks, I don't really know, because you could make the argument the other way. And in fact, some American diplomats in private have made the argument to me the other way that actually Biden would be much better for Britain because under Johnson, apart from Brexit, Britain has run a fairly conventional foreign policy on issues like climate, Iran, Israel. It's been much closer to Europe than to the Trump administration. It will be much closer to a Biden administration than to what a second Trump administration would have done, which would have been even more aggressively unilateralist. So my view is that actually, in some ways, a more conventional United States under Joe Biden is much more congenial to Britain in the long run, however much it does pose kind of emotional, tactical problems for Tory Brexiters. 
I think that's right. And Bonman, my sense from the conversations with people in the Foreign Office and Downing Street is that although they can see the ideological link between the Brexit project and Donald Trump, the erratic nature of the president has been problematic for the UK. And he hasn't actually given the UK that much. The only substantial policy impact I can see was the decision of a Huawei, where essentially the US administration actively campaigned, some would say bullied the UK into dropping it from the UK's 5G network. But there hasn't been a trade deal. There hasn't been a great economic edge or a great diplomatic edge. So having that sense of normality is something a lot of people, certainly in the civil service, would welcome. I think that's exactly right. And the presence that, if you like, that Trump has given Boris Johnson and perhaps ones that he doesn't want, like being called uh, Britain Trump. And yes, while conservatives in Britain might look at Trump and think he's a conservative, is he the kind of conservative that they want to be? He said it's come with all the trumpery that we've come to know, including denial of facts, tweeting in capital letters, and as you said, erratic, pulling out of international alliances that have taken countries, including Britain, a long time to put together, particularly on the Iran deal and on climate change. And so I think with the exception of Brexit, where Britain is going to have to do some work pretty carefully to work with a Biden presidency, Britain will find it a much easier run and much more supportive of things that Britain wants to make a success of, like the COP uh, climate change summit. Brexit is not nothing. Joe Biden, uh, like many Americans, is proud of his Irish roots, and there are many of those in Congress as well and is going to take a very tough line on anything that seems to jeopardise the Good Friday Agreement. But I think if that is navigated and the drama taken out of that, then it is just much, much easier for Britain to know what it's dealing with. Indeed. And some of the conversations I've had with government ministers this week about the question of Brexit, they feel that's going to be the most difficult initial hump for Biden presidency, because, of course, the UK is still in negotiations with the EU to get a trade deal. There still could be a no-deal Brexit at the end of this year. And Gideon, Joe Biden has made it very clear that if the UK does anything to break the Good Friday Agreement, then that will create a huge diplomatic split with the US. There won't be a trade deal. So in some ways, you could see a Biden presidency putting more pressure on the Johnson government to get a trade deal with the EU, but also to take those contentious clauses out of the internal market bill, those that broke international law in a specific way in case there is a no-deal Brexit. Because once you get over that, then things do get much easier between the UK and the US. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that you shouldn't underestimate the extent to which the Good Friday Agreement, particularly among Democrats, because it was negotiated in the Clinton years, is regarded almost as kind of holy writ as a vast American diplomatic achievement. I mean, I saw Nancy Pelosi speaking about it in London a few months back, and that was very much her tone. It was like almost a personal affront that Britain should be messing with the Good Friday Agreement. And incidentally, I happen to think the Americans are right. It would be crazy having achieved peace in Northern Ireland to jeopardise it. But, you know, once we are over that, I think the view of some Tories, that Biden is in some sense anti-British, is mistaken. First of all, the people around Biden are kind of the traditional East Coast university elite, which is culturally is about the closest to Britain that you can get in the United States. His advisors are Rhodes Scholars Inc. They're people who know Britain and generally, you know, are reasonably well disposed towards it. And I think that the way that they'll see it is that although they're obviously aware of the extent to which Trump and Brexit were associated in some ways, 
They will now see Brexit as a regrettable error by the United Kingdom, one that does make Britain less useful to the United States. We were the voice they turned to first inside the EU. And I think, oddly enough, Ireland may now play that role as the the people they go to first if there's an issue they're worried about inside the EU. But, you know, it doesn't alter the fact that the United Kingdom is a major economy, the largest single investor in the United States, you know, an important military power, NATO, etc, etc. And those are things that a Biden team will be very well aware of and are not going to throw away. Bonwin, 2021 is going to be a big year for the UK on the world stage. We're hosting the G7 summit and the COP26 climate change summit that was rescheduled due to the coronavirus pandemic. Boris Johnson sees this as a moment to reassert himself and put forward his more liberal values on the world stage, but also as a moment to engage with the new US president because he knows that they are much closer on this than, say, on Brexit. I wonder, it's a big year for Britain in all kinds of ways. Yes, there's uh, Brexit to be navigated, but there's also coronavirus, which the government is wrestling with. And in theory, what you say, perfectly good strategy, reach out to the US and other countries ahead of the climate change summit, reach out on uh, G7, try and portray Britain as big in the world, the global Britain that we've heard so much about. And I'm sure we'll see some of that. But I wonder how much the government is going to manage to surface from the sheer demands of coronavirus and actually reach out in an expansive way on the world stage and actually project Britain. And it is so much a question of individual personal projection as well as the country to get those summits to work. It may be that all the sequencing comes together and that indeed the vaccines that may begin to take the edge off the pandemic begin to come through and the government so to speak, can lift its head. But I'm just matching what you're describing, a good, expansive, ambitious repositioning of Britain on the international stage with the daily demands of what's going on at the moment. And I I wonder how it will quite come off. And there's also, of course, that personal issue as well, which I think you hinted at as well, Bronwyn, that Joe Biden has described Boris Johnson as a physical and emotional clone of Donald Trump. And psychologically, he's going to put the two in the same box there. And I think that, again, why that moment is very key to show to Joe Biden and to the world that they're not necessarily the same thing. Do you think there's a possibility that the Prime Minister and the President can develop a decent personal relationship? I think yes. There's no reason why not, but there's a question about whether Joe Biden reaches to other European leaders first, and that is inevitably going to have an effect on on Britain. So, for example, if he reaches to, to President Macron or Angela Merkel and makes those the first calls and the anchor of his European relationships, Johnson's got more riding on this than Biden because it matters to Johnson and his argument that there can be such a thing as global Britain free of the EU, that he has a close relationship with the US. And the US is going to know that. And uh, we've had many uh, instances in the past of the US very aware of how much Britain is the supplicant, if you like, and keeping prime ministers dangling a bit. I'm thinking of Gordon Brown, but there have been other cases. So it's in Joe Biden's gift And he knows it will be a valuable gift if he extends that. But there's no personal or indeed political reason why that shouldn't happen. And Gideon, finally, I'm loath to use these two words, but of course we couldn't get through a podcast on UK-US relations without asking about the special relationship, to use everybody's favourite terms here. 
is it still special in any way? And of course, obviously, the US makes every country has a relationship feel special. That's, I guess, what happens when you are a superpower. But those cultural, economic, diplomatic and trading bonds as well. You know, Boris Johnson had hoped to seal this trade deal with the US, which probably goes a bit further back down the agenda with a Biden presidency. But do you think ultimately UK-US relations can end up in a solid place, if not the most special relationship in this new era? I do think that the term special relationship is a bit past its sell-by date. It's like constantly asking your partner, do you still love me? It's just not a good strategy. But put it this way, it's a unusually close relationship on the diplomatic stage and will continue to be for a very long time for numbers of reasons. Some of them cultural, shared language, shared history. Some of them hard-headed and economic huge amounts of mutual investment between the two countries, and some of them political. These are two of the world's most traditional liberal democracies, fellow members of the UN Security Council, the G7, etc. And that continues to be the case, and actually all the more so with a conventional American president, who you can say with a straight face is a real Democrat, with a small D, not a big D. The idea that Britain and the United States are on the same page, I think is actually stronger after a Biden victory. A Trump White House too, that was spinning off into its own kind of strongman nationalism, it would have been harder and harder for a conventional UK to say, oh, nothing to look at here, it's all the same as it was. And now at least you can say with a straight face, these are two countries with a shared approach to politics and economics and security. I think in very broad terms, that's actually truer now than it was a week ago. Gideon and Bonman, thank you. It's been another expensive week for Rishi Sunak. As England entered its second coronavirus lockdown on Thursday, the Chancellor was forced to return to the dispatch box to extend the furlough scheme all the way until March. At a cost of at least £10 billion, the government will be paying 80% of the wages for those who can't work for months to come. As well as saving jobs, Mr Sunak was forced to try and save the union too. The Johnson government has been criticised for putting out more financial support when England went into tougher measures, but not when Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland did. In response, Mr Sunak offered up another £2 billion for the devolved administrations and made a passionate case for being a unionist. Mr Speaker, I also want to reassure the people of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. The furlough scheme was designed and delivered by the Government of the United Kingdom on behalf of all the people of the United Kingdom, wherever they live. That has been the case since March It is the case now and will remain the case until next March. It is a demonstration of the strength of the union and an undeniable truth of this crisis. We have only been able to provide this level of economic support because we are a united kingdom. With George Parker, in some ways, this was rather an embarrassing moment for Mr Sunak because just last month, he was very forcefully making the case that it was the right time to wind down the furlough scheme because it was expensive and wasn't needed anymore. And now he's come back and said that it needs to continue until March. Yeah, it's a hugely difficult moment for Rishi Sunak and sort of rather rushed out this week, wasn't it, on Thursday, uh, which is 
obviously right under cover of the drama around the US presidential election. So it's obviously, from a government point of view, not a bad day to bury what ultimately was bad news for the Chancellor, if not bad news for the people who are going to be in receipt of this very large amount of government cash if their jobs are furloughed or if they're self-employed. But yes, it's only back on September the 24th that Rishi Sunak set out his winter economic plan. This was the moment when he decided to try and wind down the hugely expensive furlough scheme. In future, people would get some support if they were working part-time, but the point was to end the situation where jobs were being frozen in aspic until the coronavirus passed. And then the plan went through three or four different iterations with the Chancellor coming back to the dispatch box at bewildering speed to announce new policies. And eventually he thought, basically, sod it, let's just rip the whole thing up and start again, which is what he did on Thursday. And obviously, as I said, George, this thing is pretty expensive that I think there's been estimates of circa a couple of billion pounds a month for the furlough scheme going on there. And it was really an acceptance that all that hope the Treasury had had of getting the economy going again, getting people back to work before the end of the year, that's all died and the economy is just being put on hold until March. And that's also quite a long time away, given the fact Mr. Johnson has said that the lockdown will only happen until December the 2nd. So it suggests that Britain is going to be in some restrictions way up until the middle of next year. He's basically set up an economic life support system that will be functioning until the end of the winter. Now, that has alarmed a number of Conservative MPs who believe that this is just a prelude to the government introducing tough lockdown restrictions, maybe even another national lockdown over the winter with untold damage to the economy in the process. Now, Boris Johnson said in a press conference on Thursday that he thought that people would be able to enjoy as normal a Christmas as possible, that we've returned to a regional system of tiered restrictions after the England-wide lockdown ends on December the 2nd. But you have to be a bit sceptical about that. There isn't a particular reason why Rishi Sunak has announced this scheme is going to be in place until the end of March, which is basically he fears that the economy is in for a very, very tough winter. And of course, we know that Mr. Sunak was one of the people who was pushing the hardest against the second nationwide lockdown in those internal meetings, worried about the economic costs, worried about the wider health costs. And so he sort of lost two big arguments this week because it was people like the health secretary, Matt Hancock, we know George were saying, look, we have to get down and act hard on this now. And so the fact he's had to spend more money, which is obviously going to have to be totted up and paid for at some time, does suggest this question about our number 10 and number 11 on lockstep about how to deal with coronavirus. Although Rishi Sunak basically found himself outnumbered, there was a decision taken a week ago at a so-called quad meeting about what they should do next. And Rishi Sunak found himself outnumbered. You have Michael Gove and Matt Hancock both pushing very hard for a national lockdown. Boris Johnson, I think, ever since his own brush with death with COVID back in the spring, is very much on the cautious side of the spectrum. So in the end, Rishi Sunak was outmaneuvered. And in the end, he kept quite a low profile after the national lockdown was announced in England, at least initially. But I think he's come to realise that it's government policy. Either you resign in protest, which I don't think there was ever any prospect of Rishi Sunak doing, And if you're going to stick with it, you might as well defend it and you might as well provide the money needed to offset the damage. And it is noticeable that Rishi Sunak likes to disassociate himself from lockdowns, but he still continues to enjoy putting out treasury graphics, associating himself with the largesse that the treasury is able to dispense. The might of the UK treasury, as uh, Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson like to mention in relation to Scotland. So Rishi Sunak is still getting some credit for the amount of money he's throwing out of the door, but he knows and everyone knows 
at some point is going to have to start clawing it back. And that's when it's going to get very difficult politically for the Chancellor. Well, indeed, in Muir Dickey, there was a clear emphasis on the union in Mr. Sunak's statement, because there's been a sense that this government is looking at things with an England first approach, that obviously Scotland's had a circuit breaker lockdown, as has Wales, as has Northern Ireland. They didn't get the furlough scheme. Plus, you've seen big parts of Northern England in those tier three restrictions, which are not quite a lockdown, but are quite close to it. But it was only when London, the southeast, went into further restrictions that the Treasury was forced to act. You can see why the optics of this are terrible. Absolutely. Hard to stress how unfortunate the optics have been given that where we've ended up is extension of the furlough scheme in Scotland, which is what the Scottish government had been demanding and which is broadly popular and which certainly does show the ability of the UK Treasury to respond in this kind of crisis and also greater clarity on direct funding for the Scottish government uh, up until the end of the fiscal year. So given they ended up essentially doing what the SNP had demanded, the way they've managed to do it in a kind of chaotic and delayed fashion just seems to emphasise to people here how London-centric or South of England-centric this government is. There was an opportunity which Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, who's been taking an increasingly vocal and more independent line as a way of pitching the Scottish Tories as in a good place to defend Scotland's interests with a UK government under the Conservatives. But Douglas Ross was demanding extension of the furlough on the same terms for Scotland from the weekend. But confusion about what and when the Prime Minister was agreeing seems to have undermined any message he wanted to send of them being the key players here. Well, let's actually hear from Mr Ross, who was newly appointed as the Scottish Tory leader. And he delivered a speech that was rather on the nose towards the Johnson government. It codedly criticised the Prime Minister, the Chancellor and Michael Gove, the Cabinet Office Minister, for how they've dealt with Brexit. But particularly on coronavirus handling, he feels Scotland has got a bit of a raw deal. The COVID-19 crisis has put the structures for interaction between the UK government, devolved administrations and indeed English minorities to the ultimate test. And I think that even the most committed defender of the current system would admit that they've been found wanting. On one hand, the UK government's suspicions around security of information has been legitimate. But on the other hand, devolved administrations responsible for managing the virus in their nations have been forced to look for detail on announcements from publicly available press releases. Trust has broken down, and when it does, we see time and time again that popular opinion sides with their devolved representatives. Well, George, I think when you listen to that clip from Mr. Ross there, it feels as if the government's thinking about coronavirus number one, the economy two, and the union number three, which, as you can understand, is really worrying those Scottish Tories. Scotland, you know, frankly, falls down the list of priorities of the government almost all the time. I was literally just speaking to someone who's been sitting in a lot of the meetings on Brexit over the last six months. And I asked this person whether the future of the union played a big part. And this person said, not enough. And that really only Michael Gove, the cabinet office minister, was really emotionally engaged around the cabinet table on questions of Scotland. And the inevitable question that was going to arise was what happens if Scotland decides to have a lockdown after December the 2nd, when the England one expires? And the problem was there was a technical problem, which was that the way that the furlough scheme operates, it's very difficult to split up the constituent parts of the UK. Someone in the Treasury was pointing out to me, well, what happens if you have a company headquartered in Edinburgh but with branches in Warsaw and Leeds. What do you do then? So in a way, they belatedly realised there was a problem with the devolved administrations, particularly in Scotland. And their response to it was, frankly, 
to chuck a load of money at the problem through having this vastly expensive UK-wide furlough scheme running right through to March. And of course, it's not just a problem with Scotland. It's the same in Wales and it's the same in Northern Ireland who haven't received the furlough scheme until now. And they've had their own restrictions. And, you know, we heard from Plaid Cymru this week, the Welsh Nationalist Party, and they said they'd gained new members over the last period due to the attitude of Westminster towards coronavirus. Obviously, This is a moment for nationalist politicians who can rally their troops here. But when you listen to Mr. Ross, it does feel as if there are some legitimate concerns that Westminster is just not thinking about the union in the way it needs to, if it wants to save it, based on where the opinion polls are. I think there's increasing despair in part of the people who support the union in Scotland about the lack of seriousness with which Westminster in general and the current UK government in particular take the threat to UK unity. We've just had the most recent in a dozen polls that show or suggest there would be a majority for independence if there was a rerun of the 2014 referendum. The SNP poll suggest is charging towards a really big victory in elections for the parliament in Edinburgh in May. You know, Scots like to say uh, things are hanging on a sugarly peg if they're not looking very strong. And I think you could certainly say that long-term unity of the UK looks like it's on a very sugarly peg. So Douglas Ross was being interesting. He was in his speech also suggesting that more fundamental things need to be done. He suggested reform of the House of Lords to give the devolved nations and regions of England formal representation. And he was talking about a more formalised system of engagement between the governments of the UK with, very interestingly, an arbitration system to resolve disputes. Now, that's the kind of sort of more systematic or fundamental change that I think a lot of people in Scotland would say will be needed to preserve the unity of the UK in the longer term. You don't hear many people who are based in Westminster saying anything like that. On the question of Douglas Ross's speech, I mean, as Muir was saying there, at least he's doing some fairly serious thinking about the future relationship between Scotland and the rest of the UK. Whereas some of the stuff coming out of the UK government has been frankly, you know, half-baked to say the least. I mean, we were promised a review by Lord Dunlop. It started under Theresa May's premiership, which we didn't really see the light of day. And more recently, we have sort of half-baked schemes like Michael Gove saying that he wants to have a, a new propaganda unit comprising two government press officers to make the UK case in Scotland. You know, these sort of responses don't meet up to the scale of the challenge by any stretch of the imagination. Finally, George, I just wanted to ask about this general approach to the government, because one thing that has just struck me this week is that for whatever reason, Downing Street, the Treasury, ministers, they don't seem to be able to look around obvious corners ahead. That when we were in the tiered system, Boris Johnson was very aggressively attacking Keir Starmer about his call for a nationwide lockdown, saying it would ruin business. It was the wrong thing to do. And of course, look where we are now. We've ended up with a nationwide lockdown. And it was the same with Rishi Sunak on furlough. He was saying that we can't keep the furlough going. It's far too expensive. We don't need it. And look where we are now. We've got furlough back. Why do you think the government keeps boxing themselves into these positions that are very hard line that inevitably leads to U-turns? Well, I suppose the charitable explanation is that they're dealing with a fast-moving pandemic. You know, they are fighting on multiple fronts and they don't have the bandwidth to do serious strategic political thinking and everything's a bit chaotic at the centre of government, which it certainly is. Also, I think probably where they've ended up at is not a disastrous position. I think lots of people, including some readers of the the FT, I'm sure, would think actually maybe the government had a duty to try anything, whether it's the tiered approach or trying to wind down their furlough scheme to try and put the economy back on a normal keel. 
this autumn. That's the case for the defence. But the problem is, as you say, they've compounded problems by in one breath saying that they left open all options by which they meant the idea of another national lockdown and an extension of the first scheme, but at the same time, ridiculing anyone who said that that was inevitably going to happen with the consequence that we're all now writing, of course, and talking about enormous government U-turns, chaotic government. So it's all been rather unedifying. And you'd like to think someone would have time in Downing Street to learn the lessons of this, but I frankly suspect that won't happen. And if I might add to that, it's important that the UK government be seen to be doing as best could possibly do on coronavirus. One of the dynamics in Scottish politics over the last half year has been the huge difference in the way the public view the performance of the Scottish government on the pandemic and the UK government. And while it's the case that I think the Scottish government has suffered many of the problems and the pandemic in Scotland hasn't been dramatically better handled than I can see from the way in England, but it is the case that the Scottish government under Nicola Sturgeon has managed to present its case better, to appear more consistent and to be less often promising or being seen to promise that everything is going to be okay, only to have to change its tone very dramatically later on. And that's a lesson one would have thought that the UK government might have learned by now. George and Muir, thanks for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.